Hello there, this is Jason Dees, and this is the Think Through It podcast. Think Through It exists to help people think through the big questions of life and culture. On the Think Through It podcast, we'll be talking with friends, cultural influencers, and forward thinkers about the things that all of us need to be thinking about. Today, I'm going to be talking with a great friend and thinker, Colin Hansen. Colin is a journalist and author, and I think one of the brightest minds among young evangelicals. Colin's day job is as the editorial director for the Gospel Coalition. In this post, Colin has a great pulse on the church and culture and where the two collide. And speaking of collision, it can feel like the whole world is in collision right now, socially, culturally, politically, and theologically. It can feel like everyone is fighting all the time. So how do we maneuver this as Christians, and how should Christians think about engaging with the world without engaging in the fight? Is a culture war our way forward? Or maybe withdrawal is the best answer? Or maybe another way? I'm grateful that Colin Hansen is with me today, and we're going to be talking about all of this and more. And thank you for joining us as we think through it. So, Colin, uh, you have been with Gospel Coalition for, what, 10 years now? Almost eight years. Eight years. A little okay. over eight. And uh, what's, give me the high and low of, of that. Well, the high, I think, has just been how much we've been able to grow. I, I, I think about international growth, the websites and inter- councils that we have in Australia and in Africa and in Canada. Yeah, because y'all have like particular web pages for different countries. Yeah, and about um, you know six or seven different languages, and then multiple websites in English primarily. So um, that's not mostly, but what I've been doing. We've had other leadership, uh, especially our president Don Carson, our executive director Ben Pays, who have worked on a lot of that. But that's just one of the most exciting things that we've we've seen. Um, I'd say one of the low points. There have been a number of low points. A, a couple of them have been one the debate over sanctification uh, several years ago yeah. was a very difficult one and did not end well for some individuals in particular i would say in a lot of churches were hurt uh, through that a lot of christians were hurt through that not through the debate but i think ultimately through some people who were teaching on biblical ideas yeah. um, but then also i was just reflecting recently with a friend on how certain things that we have been teaching related to uh, race relations, related to economics and justice and things like that, that we don't think would have been very controversial 10 years ago, are now far more controversial than they would have been, say, when I started. Well, that's a great segue into what I really want to talk to you about today. Um, so eight years ago, um, when you first sat in the, in the chair, um, there was a growing division in America, because that would have been post-Obama's election. Yeah, yeah, 2008 to 2012, or 2010, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so yeah, there was a growing division. I don't think anyone then saw like how that could manifest itself today. Maybe, we, maybe you saw it. Um, but, you know, I guess just kind of very simply, America feels divided today in a way that maybe it hasn't been in 50 years or so. Uh, Do you agree with that? And why is that happening? Or is that just a perception? 
Well, I do think probably 50 years ago would be a good frame of reference there because it's hard for me to say that what we're going through now would be worse than 1968, especially with the high-profile assassinations that we saw that year. It would be hard-pressed for me to say that it's worse than 150 years yeah. ago when you have civil war and millions of a people. A legitimately divided America. Right. Yeah. So, And who knows? We may be embarking upon more of those difficulties to come. I'm not really sure. I wouldn't be expecting that right now. Um, but I do think the, the main thing that's changed, even in just the last 10 years that I can say, is just the rise of social media. And social media just allows more people to communicate more quickly. And I'll give you an example of what that does. There have always been people who believed crazy things or said crazy things or have been mean. But it's isolated to the people that they actually have shouting distance to or can pick up a phone and talk to or want to drop a letter in the mail and send. It, there's a phenomenon where each side, right or left, delights in the embarrassment and the shame of the other side and so seeks out opportunities to make them look bad. And so you have both sides that are often looking at the worst elements of the other side and that, that really fans those flames. And unfortunately, it can lead to some absolutely destructive consequences. And we don't have to look very far to see examples on both sides where people have taken that, those hatreds and divisions to murderous ends. Yeah. And so that's the main difference is simply we, we know more about each other, and I don't think we're better off for it. So help me out here uh, as a Christian, because it's uh, one of the things that we do in politics, at least, is we coalesce with people. You're a member of the Gospel Coalition, so you understand the the, <laughs> coalescing. Va the value of coalescing. <laughs> right. uh, and so as a Christian, though, I mean, there's not a Christian party, uh, and I don't think either of us would, would hope that there would be, but, but how do we think uh, through our coalescing in politics? And obviously, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to hear a lot of speech like, Look, we're, we're obviously primarily citizens of the kingdom of Christ. We understand that. We understand that's our primary loyalty. But with that as our primary lo loyalty, how do you then think through the more earthy, practical uh, living out of that in a sort of political sense? Uh, probably the best observation I've heard on this came from Arthur Brooks, who was formerly from the American Enterprise Institute. I was meeting with him in Washington, D.C., and he described the differences between politics and religion, or at least what religion and Christianity in particular can be. He said, in politics, you gather everybody together in a room for a rally, and you talk about how great those people are because everybody outside of that room is horrible. Right, yeah. So thank you that we are not like all those other people. Well, that's the exact kind of attitude that we know that Jesus condemns specifically. Thank you, God, that I'm not, not like, like the, those other people mm -hmm. out there. Well, in, in the church, we do understand that we are set apart because of Christ. But it's not because we're better than everybody else. It's because we've been saved by grace. And if it's a gift, then we should not boast. And therefore, then also, we should not judge other people. Yes, we can disagree with them. Yes, we can, we can say that what they're doing is very destructive. But there's no sense in which we, we have that kind of attitude that Brooks was saying, that we don't mm -hmm. gather together everybody in church to say, look how awesome we are because we're not like those other people. That is commonly what happens in religion, but it's antithetical to the gospel and what we see um, Jesus commend. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, I think that's very, very helpful insight. So, okay, so if we're not going to do that, and um, help, help, give us some more practical tips here because— I, 
a lot of times in sermons, sermons about differences, sermons about race reconciliation, for example, it, it always seems like the application point is to the all-white church or maybe to the all-black church, go and make a friend with someone of the opposite race or go and have a real conversation. Uh, it seems that there are a few people uh, in the world that are comfortable in doing that, swimming in both waters. And at the end of the service, you know, that guy gets clobbered by everybody in his congregation <laughs> uh, because everybody wants to go, you know, make a friend with the opposite race. So, and, and if it's not that person that's comfortable kind of swimming in a pluralistic kind of world, I guess, if you will, yeah. um, how do we have those real conversations without it getting heated, without people being uncomfortable? Um, how do we even go about starting to build those relationships? Or is that even good practical advice at the end of those sermons? How would you, how would you urge yeah. the church in a practical sense there? Well, I think one basic thing that's not terribly complicated but is much more difficult to actually practice is empathy. Um, it even could go back to the main uh, kind of takeaway from what was just named the most popular book of all time in American history, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's all about learning to walk in some walk a mile in yeah. someone else's shoes. There, we can exalt that view, but it's very difficult. It's so much easier for us to, like that person who transcends those boundaries and is drawn in empathy toward people who are different from him or her is the kind of person who becomes often distrusted by both sides because it's so much more convenient to sit on one side and be able to blame that other side for everything else that's wrong. It makes you feel justified in your right. own views there. But empathy is what reaches out. That's what helps teach to understand people from where they're coming from and is open to seeing things from another perspective. I just don't see a lot of that in our politics one, but I don't even necessarily see a lot of that in the church. And that might have something to do with uh, one thing I've been writing and thinking about a lot lately is Charles Taylor's observations of how we live in a coming of age culture where we want to transcend all of the inherited things from our culture, our family, our our institutions, our churches, our traditions, things like that, and be able to feel like we are different and distinct. So if everybody's trying to come of age and to stand out, then there are few people who are willing to say, you know, tell me your story. I, I, I talk about this with writers all the time, that for at least a generation, we've trained everyone to be able to write their own stories. We almost exclusively have been training people in memoir, um, or that's kind of like the blog voice. Mm -hmm. um, but we're, we've done less of the journalistic trend, and I see this very little with Christians, of telling other people's stories. You know, we, we do testimonies, which are great, but how do we tell other people's stories, especially people who are different from us? That's one thing we've been trying to do a lot at the Gospel Coalition. We've had a good response from that. Um, I just don't see a lot of it in the Christian world. It seems easier to kind of score some points and then not have to engage in that issue then, because you're like, well, I, I know I can't trust those people because yeah. they're clearly wrong right. over here. Yeah, I mean, and... and and to be able to do that, it seems that you kind of have to be, you don't have to be, but I think there's only a few Atticus Finches out there that are willing to put their social capital on the line to be empathetic and to do something that's risky. And to even, 
you know, just to use that story as a paradigm, threaten their family, threaten right. their children, you know, etc. Yeah, I mean, he's held up as a hero, but look what he has to endure. Right. In that in that situation, look what he puts his family, you know, the the kind of situation puts his family and you're exactly right. There's a reason people don't do it. Um, it's because people tend not to want to stand out because that's where you get exposed. So we've both been reading, and it seems like this uh, author is, uh, uh, you know, I just read The Righteous Mind. Yeah. You know, it surprised me that it's a six-year-old book, you know. <laughs> and even some of his references in there, it was before Obama was elected the yeah. second time. Right. Um, you know, it was obviously before our current thing. I, before it, Obergefell as well. Yeah, before Obergefell. Yeah, because that was uh, mm-hmm. 13, 13 or 14, yeah. maybe, yeah. Uh, and so I, uh, I, you know, I was definitely fascinated uh, by the book. It seems to be, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking the reason this is, I mean, it's the same kind of thing as Hillbilly Elegy. Somebody's saying, okay, this guy's saying something that we need to be listening to. Yeah. Um, and, but, we, but nobody knew that they needed to listen to it you know, in 2012 or didn't think <laughs> they did. And so I'm curious, uh, you have recently read his, his latest book, and yeah. I, did, I did go read the Atlantic article. After yeah, we, good. Yeah, best read they've ever done. It's the most widely read Atlantic piece online in history. So, what just to, for the people that haven't read it, With what Jonathan is, Haidt? Yeah, what is it's the coddling of the American mind. What is he responding to? Well, he's responding mainly to what we see uh, in college campuses, in particular, of what you hear about safe spaces or what you hear about trigger warnings or things like that. The idea that speech is, can be hateful in a way that we physically respond to and must be physically protected from. And so they they talk about these great untruths. One of the great untruths that they unmask in this book is the idea that when we face hardship, it inevitably makes us worse off. Therefore, we must at all costs avoid hardship. And we must then go in defense of everybody else to protect them from experiencing hardship. So even by proxy, we're going around trying to protect everybody else from ever hearing or experiencing anything that that could be considered hurtful or harmful to them. Um, the, The argument of this book is that it's operating on a fundamentally flawed premise that these things can physically hurt you and you must be physically protected from them, but actually that kind of dialogue in a pluralistic environment is what makes us stronger and what makes our society stronger. There's no possibility of empathy, just like we were talking about before, if they're not willing to, to listen to anybody else who might disagree with you there. So that's part of the coddling. They identify the, the culprits. At, well, they identify a number of different factors, Lukianoff and, uh, and Haidt, but one of them is the rise of smartphones. They, they don't say that's the exclusive uh, kind of problem of what they're seeing, but there's a certain level of sensitivity and frustration and anger that apparently is magnified through extensive use, especially for natives on smartphones, i.e. children who've never, who've grown up, but have never really experienced a world Life without outside them. outside of it, yeah. Yeah, so that they, they start to see some significant factors um, change post-2008 yeah. with the in- introduction of the iPhone. Did so, you read the Atlantic article? It was a year ago about, um, uh, I can't remember the title of it. It was about the girls? Well, it was all about the this generation's use of phones and how they're dating less, Yeah, they're working less. Driving less. Just, dri- yeah, the, yeah. 
they that was that was the most st- stunning statistic to me was that 65% of high school seniors have their license and when we were kids it was like 98%. Oh. And that was the most exciting day of my life except for maybe my wedding day was going <laughs> to get my license. And so And the freedom but but now out you in South Dakota though y'all were driving at like 14. 13. Yeah, 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 yeah. 14 is the legal legal yeah, age yeah. there but that's only because we were driving for the like previous 10 years as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tractors and stuff like that. But no, that's the I mean, there's a there's a sense in which the smartphone radically subverts any kinds of authority and particularly parental authority because it immediately becomes an outlet to all of your peers and any number of like there's there's no lifestyle that you cannot find affirmed somewhere in some corner of the Internet. Just look for it. And so one of the things that we've seen just very recently, New York Times has published this again and again and again, is how the people who have developed this technology are the ones who are least likely to allow their children to use it. Yeah. Um, And those people who are wealthier have are, are actually more throwbacks when it comes to the kind of toys and the kinds of activities that they engage in there precisely because they know how addictive and how damaging these technologies can be. And it's one grand experiment because we've, we've simply never had anything like this yeah. before. And, and, and to your point about hate talks about that. He says, you know, you have your own research team, which is Google uh, when he's talking about intuition and the elephant in the righteous mind, where he basically just says, look, if you want to just continue to feed the elephant, feed your intuition, there's plenty of stuff out there uh, to feed it with. Yeah, so that, that main distinction, we imagine ourselves to be rational figures who have simply looked at the facts and made a, a decision. It's part of what makes us so judgmental to people who disagree with us because we think this is obvious yeah. to everybody here. What's but wrong in with fact, him? But in fact, he argues that we're more intuitive figures. The rider is not the one in charge. It's the elephant that he's sitting on right. that's taking him one way or another. And that makes us then very tribal creatures. We Our intuitions guide us to these dichotomies of right and wrong and good and evil in terms of how people congregate together these binaries and that becomes very assuring to us it, and we don't really we, we kind of don't we have, we can outsource our thinking then we don't actually have to process through this kind of stuff we only use our reason when we want to appear reasonable right right to people there um, this is profoundly helpful on many different levels especially pastoral levels because it helps you to understand why people can be so passionate about something that they really aren't interested in a rational, non-emotional discussion over. It becomes a part of their identity in ways that is very difficult to dislodge. It's a great lesson to learn early in ministry. People do not make decisions based on reason. So (laughs) if if there are any of you young pastors listening to this, going into established traditional churches, that this is the best thing you will hear. Do not try to reason your way into change. People are going to, you're going to have to move the elephant. People are going to have to emotionally kind of attach themselves to a major change. Um, So going back to the coddling, this is a question I wanted to ask you. What does, and I haven't read the book, you know, how do you relate this to um, what I would call the hyper victimization of the American person Um, just in general? What do you see as factors there, and what do, what do, how do we need to speak into that world? Because yeah. that's a scary world to speak into, yeah. uh, so, especially as a you know, 
well-educated white male. Right. right. So you you need to start with the empathy premise there, that we can't just assume that everybody who's complaining about something or pointing out an injustice is merely um, claiming the victim status there. So that's why the empathy has to start, the ability to be able to understand people from another another perspective. And then I would say the next step is to realize our own tendency to do that. Christians are extremely willing to participate in the victimization culture if they think that it will benefit them. And sometimes what they're pointing out are absolutely valid views. I would say religious liberty would be one of those things that's an absolutely valid perspective there. But part of the problem is that both sides of a political debate or a theological debate are very, you know, feel victimized and therefore feel justified in saying or doing whatever is necessary to be able to defeat the other side. But Christians understand we are not primarily victims. We are primarily sinners who have offended a holy God, but then who has made us to be saints and made us righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. Going back to what we talked about earlier with the empathy as a gift, so that none of us can boast. That ought to be able to uproot that victimhood there to understand that, no, we are conquerors. We are more than conquerors because of what Christ has done for us. So we don't have to engage in that kind of victimhood apologetics or politics or anything. And that's, I think, the only way we're going to get out of this system is if, if we have empathy and an unwillingness to take up the weaponry of victimhood. Yeah, that's, that's very, very helpful. And you're right, that's an easy tool to grab, um, you know, if, you know in, any, in any context, you know, even with the secularization of America, to say, hey, they may, uh, you know, be shutting us up pretty soon. So, you know, whatever it is, you know, you should participate in this, you should give to this, you should come to this. So, uh, so any, any, as we think about the division of America, um, we've got a lot of factors. You got the social media factor. You've got the, you know, isolation factor, I think is the iPhone. You've got yeah. the hyper victimization factor. You've got, um, you know, I could just go on and on and on that just the, 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 the confusion of any sort of social norms that this country uh, and that society has really been built on is going back to, I guess, isolation and self-determination. So what are some practical tips that you would give to Christians trying to maneuver this in the workplace, uh, trying to have these conversations from a biblical perspective, uh, any pitfalls to avoid, any practical things to, to help them kind of through these kinds of conversations as they, as they come up? I think the first thing is we simply need to be rooted ourselves in the Christian story, in the Christian tradition, in Christian history. Um, one of the things that um, became, uh, well, famous last year and for years before that was something called the Benedict Option. And the essential argument there was if we're going to offer something to the world, we must be properly formed ourselves so that we understand what we're giving to the world. And that's the place that I would start because if you don't understand who we are, yeah, that was less about going underground and right. more about just understanding what Christianity was. Exactly. And so I don't think you could say that our churches are full of people who are completely biblically literate, who understand Christian history, who have been catechized to understand the contours of Christian theology, who can explain to you the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, if we don't have that 
basis, then we're going to run into a lot of trouble. Um, at the same time, and this is one of the things I love about Christians, you can spend your entire life studying everything you want, and you still won't even scratch the surface yeah. of everything that's there. That's what eternity is for. <laughs> but at the same time, somebody who's new to the faith can immediately understand what it's all about, because Christ is raised. So if we come into the mentality that eternity is real, into those confrontations at work. Eternity is real. Jesus is risen. The Spirit is with me. The, prov the, the Father is disciplining me according to His providential rule at all times. Then that should fill us with a great deal of confidence, a great deal of love, a great deal of patience. And we should be able to go into those interactions not with a spirit of defensiveness or fear, but of courage and compassion. So that, that's the kind of attitude shift that I would love to see Christians to adopt. And also it's beneficial because it's appealing right. to other people. It's going to make, it's going to, um, you know, encourage people in Christ as opposed to making them feel like Christians are just another group that's out for themselves. I'll use the categories of Christianity and Western Christianity. They kind of talk about, I guess, if mm -hmm. you want to talk about Western civilization, but particularly as it relates to Christianity and then Christianity. And I, I kind of think that a lot of, our church today, the American church today, is, is more schooled in Western Christianity than we are in actual Christianity. Our confidence, confidence is in this Western Christianity morality or this Western Christianity uh, ethos and not yeah. truly in what you were just describing is just, look, no, our confidence is in Christ's victory and the Spirit's work in our lives and the Father's reign. And, um, and if we could just yep. bathe ourselves in that, yeah, we will, we'll have a healthy church. Well, it's a lot of our anger and frustration seems to come from the fact that we've lost something in Western culture. We've lost something that the Bible never promised us that we would have. Basically, a cultural hegemony and a political hegemony in a certain place. It seems to presuppose the complete opposite yeah. until Christ returns. So if we reorient ourselves toward a biblical perspective on these things, then I don't think we're going to have quite so much again, fear and hatred and the things that come, that, that the negative consequences that stem from that. Well, Colin, it's been great to talk to you for a few minutes. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the Think Through It podcast. Yeah, thanks, Jason. For Colin Hansen, I'm Jason Dees, encouraging you to think through it. Um.